Good morning. So glad that you're here. I see some new faces here and welcome to Lighthouse. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And for those of you who were here last week, it was a really sweet send off for Pastor Lee and Mary as they head out to Arizona. Now I think that they're probably in the sauna that is their new home. Um, So good on them. But uh, I want to say thank you for all of those of you who stepped up to really make last Sunday a very, very special weekend. Particularly, I want to uh, just name Glenn uh, Owen, who not only spent a month putting that video together, not only that, but he and Ann Owen actually donated the trees that are out front um, just as a, a way of saying thank you to Lee and Mary for the ways that they have invested in this place. So it's a wonderful weekend. And I'll tell you, for me, the moment that it really came to roost, uh, like the, I think it, I call it the oh crud factor kind of set in, was right after we'd finished praying over Lee and Mary. And then everybody's breaking up and beginning to, you know, with tears in our eyes and smiles on our faces, we're hugging and talking and all that. And in that moment, I don't even remember who was standing next to me, but I go, man, I feel like I just simultaneously crossed a finish line and a starting line at the same moment. Like, here we go, right? The, the, the end of the sprint and now the beginning of the marathon. Um, can you turn the volume down just slightly? Thank you. Uh, so, you know, for me, it, I know that I may have been handed the baton of leadership about two months ago. But there's always something about having dad still home to be able to lean on and go, okay, uh, you know, so how, how do you do this or how do you do that? And he's always a phone call away and he has made that very, very clear. But there's just that, that moment of like, okay, here we go. Like we're in. Jeff is here and I'm excited for you guys to get, you're going to get to know him. Yeah, you guys are going to get to know him a little bit later today. Um, but for those of you who are, are first time here, This is the beginning of something, and I'm really excited for what God has in store, but we also recognize that with any transition, it can be uncomfortable. Because what happens in transitions is your your rhythms are upset, your your habits, the things that you have normally leaned back on, and you just go, well, yeah, I know what to expect. All of that's thrown out the window. I tell new couples when they're about to have a baby, I go, listen, you don't just add a baby to your family, you get a brand new family, and you get to figure it all out again. Your sleep schedules, forget about it. That's not going to happen anymore. In the same way, we are in this process of transition. And so rather than simply say, hey, we got this, we know what we're doing, we decided let's take about a month or two and look at some other people who have walked through transitions in their own um, lives, particularly um, biblically. So we've been in the Old Testament looking at some places that we don't normally frequent and looking at some of the stories of people who walked through transition both well and others not so well. So about a month and a half ago, we looked at Joshua, this young man who all of a sudden found himself at the helm of the people of Israel. Moses had just died, and now it's Joshua who was left with the task of leading the people into the promised land, and that oh crud factor starts to set in. And then the next week, we looked at um, the judges, and we began to look at a time when the people of Israel really didn't have a leader. They, they kind of did whatever they saw fit, and we saw how that went sideways very, very quickly. The following week, we looked um, at the, the people of Israel going, you know what, God, I know that you said you wanted to be our leader, but we kind of want a king like all the other nations, all right? We're feeling a little left out, so can we make that happen? And um, then the following week, we looked at insecure leadership, 
this transition between Saul and David, and particularly from the mindset or the perspective of Saul, as he saw this young up-and-comer come, and he's like, I'm not really willing to share my chariot with another person, particularly somebody that is going to begin to eclipse me. And then finally, we looked at, over Father's Day, we looked at King David, and although he did tons of things really well, the one thing that he, he fell down on quite a bit was his relationship with his kids, particularly his one son, Absalom. And we looked at the cry of that young man's heart for his father's love, and when he didn't get it, the ways that he then began to act out in order to, to kind of take his father's respect in some really unhealthy ways and the destructive effect that that had. So today, we are going to be continuing this study. We've got a couple more weeks, and we're going to be in the, the book of 1 Kings. I know many of you were probably there this morning in your devotionals. So go ahead and turn there. It's towards the beginning of your Bible. If you find yourself in the Psalms, turn left. Um, you know, if you're in the Judges or anywhere like that, go ahead and go right. Book of 1 Kings, chapter 11. So we're going to look at two different kings today. We're going to look at Solomon very, very briefly, who is David's son, and then we're going to look at his son, Rehoboam. uh, Solomon was the third king of Israel, and he followed David, and then his son, Rehoboam, was the fourth king of Israel and followed Solomon, and and we're going to see some of the effects that his leadership had on the kingdom of Israel. A couple things about uh, about Solomon. Solomon was a, a very, very strong leader like his father. One that is celebrated, we know his name, because he's, he's come down through the history as one of the wisest leaders that has led his people. He was known as the wisest king of Israel. He was world-renowned at the time for his wisdom. And yet he was different from his father. He may have been a strong leader like his dad, David, but he was a very different type of leader. David was a conqueror. He was a, a military commander. He was the one who shored up the nation of Israel, the borders that they had. It was Solomon that came on his heels then and began to build the infrastructure. He spent almost his entire 40 years of leadership building up palaces and, and the, the roads and other things that would lead places. And most importantly, he built the temple of God that his father David had, had said, hey, God, I'll build it. And God's like, nope, you got enough blood on your hands. I'm going to have your son build that thing. And so Solomon spent 40 years building up the kingdom of Israel. But of course, in order to do that, you need a couple things. You need labor and you need resources or finances. And so he heavily taxed the people and he, he kind of leaned heavily upon them to get the things done that he wanted to get done. Solomon, like his father David, was also a man of words, although David was more of a poet and Solomon was more of a philosopher. David wrote the majority of the Psalms, not all of them, but quite a number of them. Solomon, on the other hand, was a a philosopher. He wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs, these short aphorisms, uh, just nuggets of wisdom that you can take. And of course, we can always take them out of context to make them say something that they're not intended to say. It's that whole, like, an apple a day keeps the doctor away as a modern aphorism. He would say things like, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or, you know, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Or my personal favorite, um, if you rescue a fool in his folly, you're just going to have to do it again and again and again. Some of those things where you kind of start sitting in them and going, all right, what does this really mean? 
Solomon was a wise man, so wise, in fact, that there were people from all over the nations, all around, all of these pagan nations that heard of his wisdom, heard of the splendor of his kingdom, and wanted to come and visit it just to see if it was true. And yet, as often happens, being wise doesn't necessarily mean that you're perfect. In fact, it almost always means that you're not perfect. And Solomon had a blind spot, a pretty big one. It was the same blind spot that his father had. Because his father had this, this weakness for women, even if they weren't necessarily his wife. And we saw the effects that the Bathsheba episode had in David's life. We're probably pretty familiar with that. Where Solomon followed on the heels of his father in that way. In the, in the same ways that his father had a weakness for women, Solomon did as well. And despite the fact that in Deuteronomy 13.13, 13, Moses had basically said, the king should beware of having many wives because they will inevitably draw his heart away from God. Solomon completely disregarded that. And he just blew the doors off of this thing. He had 700 wives. I've got one. That is enough. He had 700, and many of them were, most of them, in fact, were, were political marriages. He would shore up relationships with other nations by marrying these women. And on top of that, if, if, as if 700 wives wasn't enough, he had 300 concubines. We won't even go into that. But it's just like, this man had a lot of women to draw from. And unfortunately, Moses' warning came to pass because those women didn't make him do anything because he chose to do this, but they certainly swayed him because they came in not only with their feminine wiles, but they also came in with their cultural and their spiritual differences where they were worshiping other gods and slowly those other gods began to creep into the nation of Israel because Solomon, in wanting to make things right with his wives, embraced their gods as well. And so we read here in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord became angry with Solomon. I mean, you're my representative. You're the one I have placed at the helm of Israel to represent my leadership over these people. And yet you're turning not only your heart, but the heart of my people away from me. And so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him not once but twice. And although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, listen, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear this kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I won't do this during your lifetime. I will tear it out of your hand of your son. Yet I won't tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So fast forward. Years pass. And this plays out exactly 
as God had warned. There's a, a guy named Jeroboam. He is one of the uh, overseers of the forced labor that Solomon used to build his kingdom. And because he was so close to the people he was leading, he built a relationship with them. And they said, you know, here's a strong leader. We wish this young guy was our leader because he's a lot better leader than Solomon isn't caring for our needs. Yes, he's building great, grand, wonderful things, but we don't feel like he thinks about us. He, he taxes us and he demands that we do all of this building to make his name great. And we're kind of done with that. And there was a prophet that pointed at Jeroboam and said, listen, Jay, God has chosen you to be the leader of the kingdom of Israel. The word gets back to Solomon that this is what this prophet has said to this guy Jeroboam. And Solomon goes, "Uh uh-uh, not on my watch. And so he does what so many other kings had done before him. What Saul had done with David when he realized that David had God's hand of blessing on him. He tries to kill him. And Jeroboam wisely says, this is not a fight that I'm going to win. So he hightails it into Egypt and basically waits out Solomon's reign. And after 40 years, Solomon passes away. And he's buried next to his father David in in Jerusalem. And now the story that we're going to really lean into and focus on this morning is going to pick up in chapter 12. His son, Rehoboam, this is Solomon's son. So don't get them mixed up. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Jeroboam is this other young guy that that God said, you're going to be my replacement. He made it easy for us to recognize them, like kind of naming them similarly, I guess. That's from me. That is not from the Lord. (coughs) So we're going to pick up in chapter 12 here, verse 1. Rehoboam, son son of Solomon, went to Shechem. Now Shechem is not Jerusalem. You would expect that if you're going to be crowned king, you would do it in the capital of the nation. However, this is a day before planes, a day before trains, a day before automobiles. You know, so... traveling is difficult, and so instead of expecting everybody to come to Jerusalem, you kind of go to the center. And the city of Shechem was centrally located within all of Israel. It was north of Jerusalem along the spine of mountains. And so you're you're, you're still up on the top of the mountains here, and then uh, the trail from the west as well as from the east kind of centered there. And so it became a nexus for gathering the people together. And you'll notice if you read through the Old Testament that Shechem comes up time and again because it was kind of this byway, this place that people would meet at. It's kind of like saying, hey, I'll meet you over at Triangle Square because that's you know, the, the con- conflagration of a lot of different streets. So he goes to Shechem along with his entourage and the people of, Jerusalem, or the people of Israel gather there to make him their king. And this is the first time that we begin to hear grumblings that all is not well in the nation of Israel. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had gone there to make him king. And when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He ended up returning from Egypt. And so the people say, Jeroboam, you're our guy. You're going to represent us. We need you to go and talk to Rehoboam. I want you to understand what's going to happen here for a second. I want you to think of the nation of Israel for just a moment like a business. All right? It is a large company. Solomon and his son Rehoboam are the management. Jeroboam is like the union boss that everybody says, we want you to be our representative. Go and talk to them and tell them our grievances. Well, what are their grievances? Verse 3, they sent for Jeroboam and had the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, listen, 
Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten this harsh labor and the heavy yoke of of taxation that he's put on us, and we will serve you. We're happy with having you as our king, but quite honestly, we're just tired of being conscripted to build as many things as he wanted to build, and, and a lot of taxation without much representation. So if you're willing to lighten this up a little bit, we will serve you. Verse 5, Rehoboam answered, tell you what, give me three days and then come back to me. Wise young man, Rehoboam at the time is 41 years old, just a couple years older than me. He's in charge of hundreds of thousands of people. And this is not a decision that he takes lightly, which is wise. You don't want to make large decisions quickly, knee-jerk, because it affects a number of people. So he says, give me three days and then come back to me. And so the people gave him that time. Verse 6, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. What would you advise me to do or how to answer these people, he said. And the advisors replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, then they will always be your servants. If you show respect for their desires, you show a little bit of humility then they will trust and follow your lead throughout your reign. Verse 8. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him, and they consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him, guys who had lived in the, temp- or in the palace with him, guys who he spent time with who were his same age, who hadn't really experienced the world around him, his drinking buddies. Hey, guys, what do you think I should do? Verse 10, the young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them this, my little finger is thicker than my father's entire waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father beat you with whips. I will beat you with scorpions. Okay. So here's what's going down. Let's back up for just a moment and look at, at, at what transpires here because this is really where we're going to lean in this morning. Rehoboam has a group of people that, that the majority of the people that he leads come up to him right at the very beginning of his leadership and says, we want you to be our king, but we're asking for some concessions. Would you simply lighten the load? Would you, would you not demand as much taxation? Would you not demand as much labor from us? And we will, we will follow you. And Rehoboam wisely goes to his father's elders, the men that he, his father had leaned in. And let's just think for a moment about who his father was. His father was Solomon, arguably one of the wisest men that has ever lived, without a doubt the wisest king that Israel ever had. And yet even he recognized the need for other voices to speak into the decisions that he made. These weren't people that simply were rubber stamp yes men. These were men who gave him counsel, who probably challenged from time to time what Solomon thought was the right move. And they say, in all due respect, that's probably not the best choice. Solomon understood the need for, can we throw up, there's, if it wasn't enough to simply 
know that he had elders. He also wrote tons of Proverbs about the need to have wise counsel. So let's throw these up. Proverbs 1.5. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Solomon wrote this. Rehoboam, no doubt, heard this from his father as his father was preparing him to be king. You need wise counsel. And if you want to be a wise guy, then you're going to need other wise people to surround you and pour into you. Next one. Proverbs 12:15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Last one. Proverbs 19:20. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you might be wise the rest of your days. This is just 3 of dozens of them that fu- that we find throughout the book of Proverbs and then again in Ecclesiastes he hits some other ones that are really meaty that we're not going to take the time to go into today. But suffice it to say, Solomon understood the need for counselors to speak in and to allow others' voices to be heard. And Rehoboam wisely not only says, give me a little bit of time to think about this, but he begins by asking these guys, what do you think I should do? And they tell him, listen, you've got a people who have been pretty heavily depended upon. They've been taxed. They have been put to work. And they are saying they're willing for you to be their king. They just are tired of it being upon their backs and with their bucks. So just tone it down. And if you give them an inch today, they will give you a mile. They will walk with you. They will support you. That is our recommendation, is that you show them some respect, that you model some humility for them. Smart counsel, wise counsel. Problem is... Rehoboam's a young guy. He's new at this thing. And he's thinking, yeah, that's not what I'm thinking. That's not what I think should happen. And so instead of listening to what they have, because in his mind, I think what's going on, and we're going to find out what's going on is he's thinking, who do they think I am? They're trying to push me around because I'm not my father. Well, I'm going to show them that I am worthy of their respect. I'm going to make them respect me because I'm going to tell them that I'm even greater than my father and I'm going to be even a stronger, more powerful leader than my father was. And so he goes to his drinking buddies, the guys that he's grown up with, guys that had been as sheltered as he had been. He says, what do you guys think? Oh, Ray, let me tell you. (laughs) Buddy, these guys have no respect for you. They respected your father. They have to learn to respect you. They're trying to see how far they can push you, man. You don't want to let them go there, Ray. You've got to push back. So tell them this. My little pinky is heavier than my father's fist. Tell them, if you think my fa- the, the yoke that my father put on your shoulders that you had to carry was heavy, just wait because mine's going to be even heavier. He beat you with, with whips to get you to do it. I'm going to beat you with chains. That's what you should tell them. Because honestly, Ray, the only way they're going to respect you is if they fear you. And this whole time, Ray Boehm's going, <laughs> I said, yeah, of course. I mean, why don't those wise guys think the same way you guys do? You guys are so much smarter than them. So three days go by. And the people gather again at Shechem. And, and, and Jeroboam and all of the people filter into the square. And Rehoboam walks in with his entourage, his retinue. On his side, he's got his, his young guys sitting over there. Behind him, he's got his father's elders, and he takes the seat. 
the king's seat with a sneer on his face and disgust in his heart over these people who would try to push him around. He says, listen, three days ago you came here and you asked me to not be the kind of leader my father was, to tone it down, to be a weaker man than my father was. Well, I got news for you. I am a much stronger man than my father ever was. If you think he was heavy-handed, just wait. My pinky is heavier than his fist. And if you think the yoke that he put upon your shoulders was heavy, just wait. Because my yoke will be far greater than his. He might have encouraged you with whips to do it. I will use chains to do it. So don't step to me. And out of the corner of his eye, he can see his drinking buddies going, Yeah, yeah, you tell him, Ray. And behind him, what he can't see is his father's elders, the wise men who had helped him lead this nation for four decades, slowly burying their faces in their hands, going, oh, this kid has no idea the powder keg he's setting off right now. Because what Rehoboam didn't recognize is that the people were at a breaking point. They were tired. They were weary. And they had, had put forward an olive branch. Rehoboam, if you'll just give us an inch, we'll give you a mile. We will be faithful to you throughout your entire reign. And Rehoboam just slapped that olive branch right back in their face and said, I want nothing to do with it. And so we read the, the reaction that this had in verse 16. When all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? In other words, taxation without representation. I'm sorry, but we refuse to continue to allow you to abuse us to do what you want and to make your name great. So to your tents, Israel, and you, you can look after your own house, David. And so the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, the southern states, they stayed faithful and Rehoboam continued to rule over them. And so exactly what God had said would happen, happens. The nation of Israel is torn in two. The northern ten tribes secede from the union. We can throw the, the map up here for a moment. The northern ten tribes secede. Everything virtually from Jerusalem on becomes the northern nation of Israel. They had the most tribes. They had the most space. Therefore, they say, we're going to retain the name. We're going to be Israel. The southern two tribes, the one in purple there, so you see up on top, that, the, the red is Israel. That was the northern ten tribes. And it makes, they made Samaria the capital of Israel. And then the purple section there, that is what is left for Rehoboam to rule over. Jerusalem continued to be the capital. And because Rehoboam was from the tribe of Judah... That nation took its name from that. You had the tribe of Judah, and then added to that, Rehoboam continued to have control over the people of uh, the tribe of Benjamin. So there were two tribes that he had, ten tribes that were up north, and this now becomes the divided kingdom that will ha happen for the next 200 years. But there's a problem. You see, Jeroboam recognizes, I'm the king of these people, but the temple that we worship our God at, that's still down in Rehoboam's area. And if our people who are in the habit of going and worshiping annually at these feasts, if they continue to go down to Jerusalem, Rehoboam's going to be able to woo their hearts back. So I've got to do something. What can I do? 
well, obviously, I've got to make places for them to go worship their God without having to go to Jerusalem. And so, taking a page out of his forefather's book, he makes some high places, and then he makes some golden calves, because that worked so well the last time. And he says, hey, guys, listen, here are the gods that, rep, uh, that re, you know, got you out of Israel or out of Egypt, that re- rescued you from slavery. Here are the gods. Worship them. And Jeroboam was simply the first in a long line of bad kings that slowly but inexorably moved the people of God away from their devotion to their God and and begin to bend their hearts towards others. And over the next 200 years, the northern nation of Israel is slowly picked apart by foreign nations until 200 years later, there's nothing left of it. And the Assyrians come in and basically take everybody out and that becomes a wasteland of paganism until much, much later on in Israel's history. And as for Rehoboam and Judah, they last longer. They've got some pretty bad kings themselves. We're going to meet a king next week that was pretty good. And there were moments when they kind of pulled their head back up out of the sand and recognized, oh, wait a minute, we're supposed to be faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What are we doing? But they also had some kings that continued to pull their hearts away, and they paid for it. And as for Rehoboam, He may have led the nation of Judah for the next 17 years, but his leadership never recovered from that first poor choice. And here's a, we step back and go, okay, great story, interesting. I hadn't read that in a while, or maybe I've read over it, but I never really understood it. So what, Eric? Why does this matter? What bearing does this have on my life? A couple of things. In leadership, one of the things we learn from Rehoboam is that when a leader thinks they already know what the best answer is, they are unfortunately unteachable. Right? If you think you already know what the best answer is, you're not open to somebody else teaching you. I'm running into this with my son, Ethan. He's eight going on 18. The kid thinks he knows everything. I try to teach him how to... um, After the men's retreat, we had some of those throwing knives, so I'm like, oh, I'm going to teach my boy how to throw some knives, right? Yeah, why chromosome? Whatever. Don't call CPS, please. I'm trying to teach my boy how to throw knives. I kid you not, the first time he sees him, I go, Ethan, let me show you how to do this. I got this, Dad. I know what to do. I'm like, dude, you've never held a knife. We've never let you hold a knife. I feel very uncomfortable with the fact that you think you already know. He's like, no, I'll show you. I want to show you I know. It's like, all right, buddy, show me. And I'm like, no, don't hold it with your hand over the, uh, over the blade. Come on. Got to teach him. But he doesn't think he needs it because he wants to show us that he already knows it. And how many of us are like that? Don't show me. I'll show you I already know. This is exactly the issue that the Pharisees ran into. They were experts at the law. When they were 14 years old, for those who had stayed in school and and done all of the work, a 14-year-old kid who had been raised as a Pharisee would have memorized the entire Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, the Italian prophet, everything memorized. And yet, when Jesus shows up on the scene, their long-awaited Messiah, they miss him completely. Because they may have understood the letter of the law, but they miss the heart completely. And when Jesus begins to teach that we should have grace... 
And when he, he does a sermon on the mountain, completely upturns their thinking. They'd understood the head, but they'd missed the heart of God. And when he begins to upturn these things, they go, this guy's a danger. And they not only tried to shut him up, they tried to shut him down, and they ultimately forced his crucifixion. Not realizing that they were actually ultimately causing God's will to be done, but they missed their Messiah in the process. When I was first um, preparing for marriage, we're, we're doing premarital with, with Heather and Jimmy here in a couple of months. Our new, our new youth pastors are going to be getting married. Very excited about that. But, and, I, and I found myself ta- sharing something with them last week that my mentor had shared with me 13 years ago when Kathy and I were going through premarital. We, we, my friend Jeff and his wife Lisa led us through premarital. It was one of like three different premarital sessions we went through. And in it, Jeff said something at that time that has stuck with me 13 years later that I go back to again and again that I shared with them. He started with, Eric, listen, you're a smart guy. And when you look at something, chances are you're seeing it correctly from your perspective. I'm thinking, Jeff, I like how you started. Keep talking. I'm listening, right? Keep going. And he goes, but problem is Kathy is a smart woman as well. And when she sees things, chances are she's seeing it from a correct perspective as well. So do not think for a moment that you have a monopoly on the right answer. And your job as the husband and the head of your household is to get down off your high horse and go over and seek to understand your wife's perspective before you ask her to see it from your perspective. And if you can do that, not only will you lead her well, You will love her well. And can you imagine if we as a people began to adopt that posture? Can you imagine the effect it would have on politics if people from the different sides of the house would rather than simply standing staunchly, pointing fingers and yelling at one another that the others are idiots, small-minded and completely off base, if they would seek to actually understand where the other side was coming from with humility and grace? Could you imagine the effect that it could have? Could you imagine the effect it would have on social media if rather than us simply kind of putting our heels down on the ground and, and shouting down anybody that has a differing perspective, if we actually seek to understand what the other person is saying and where they are coming from rather than simply writing them off or unfriending them? Can you imagine how that might change social media? Can you, under, can you even begin to imagine what would happen in the church if we began to approach our spirituality with a recognition that, guess what? We don't know everything. And there are things that are going to challenge us, things that somebody will say, that oh, that hurts. I don't like that. And rather than simply putting up our defenses and saying, ah, that's wrong, that's a misinterpretation of that, and simply walking away, what if we did what the Bereans did? That when we hear something and it hurts, rather than simply rejecting it, we lean in. And we go to Scripture and we go, does it really say that? And then we prayerfully go, God, is that really what you're saying? But what do we do instead? We, we, we do exactly what Paul warned his protege Timothy would happen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, listen, 
in the last days. Can we throw it up there? Yeah, that, that's a good one. I should have said that earlier. Pride is like spiritual cataracts. It blinds us to what's right in front of us. Write that down. That's worth remembering. But that's not what I meant. Can we go to 2 Timothy chapter 4? Thank you. Verse 3. This is what Paul said to Timothy in one of his final letters that he wrote. The time is coming <clears throat> when people won't listen to good teaching. Instead, to suit their desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. I don't want to hear that. That challenges me to change my life. No, I like him better. His preaching is, is really good, man. It makes me feel good. I walk out of there feeling like I am the king of the world or whatever. Do we allow people into our lives to speak truth? I, I want to ask you this question seriously. Do you allow people into your lives who can challenge you and who can speak truth without fear of you pushing them away or of you getting angry? I, for one, desperately need it. I don't need people around me that say what I want to hear. I need people around me who say what I need to hear. I need people like Gene, who this week challenged me on something that I needed to hear, spoke some truth. I need people like my buddy Josh Van Ginkle, who is a prophet in my life in the sense that I will come in there. He's, he's a guy I've been meeting with for probably a decade now, and we'll have breakfast and I'll sit down with him. I go, man, this is what's going on. And I'll start to pour out the frustration I'm having maybe in my marriage. Like, oh, Kathy is just... Blah, blah, blah. And he goes, Eric, you're the one who's being selfish. And then he'll begin to speak. And it's like, oh, that hurts. I need more of that. I need that perspective. People like Ray Markley, who it's constantly... I sit down with the guy and he's constantly like booting me in the butt going, it's time to get going, boy. I need that. I need people like Diane and Byron Winicky that I can go to their house and I can be like... Eh, like this and they're like suck it up buttercup in jesus name right i need that there's a um a historian actually i think we have it up here can you throw up this is a historian a woman named doris kearns goodwin she wrote that book about lincoln's cabinet a, a team of rivals in which she has studied not just lincoln's leadership but all of the american presidents and this is what she wrote not in that book, but in a different one on, on the American president. He said, good leadership requires you to surround yourself with people of diverse perspectives who can disagree with you without fear of retaliation. Good leadership requires you to surround yourself with people of diverse perspectives who see things slightly different than you do or perhaps sometimes radically different from the way that you do. And they can disagree with you without fear of retaliation. Do you allow people in your life, do you have people in your life like this who not only see things differently than you, but have permission to speak those things in truth? And do you actually listen? Or the moment that somebody says something that, ooh, that hurts a little bit, do your defenses go up and say, uh-uh, I don't want to hear it. Unfriend. I got to tell you that... Um, my commitment to this church. It, it, it's interesting that we're having this conversation literally the week after Lee has left. Because I recognize that a lot like Rehoboam, I'm this young guy who's being tasked with leading a people, many of whom are decades older than me. There's a lot of wisdom in this room. And I, ha I having, I don't know, something like 20 years of pastoral ministry, I may feel at times like, oh, I know what the right answer is, but I'll tell you guys, 
I don't need yes people around me because I'm smart enough to know that everything I say is not right. And all of my natural inclinations is not always the best idea. I need to surround myself not with yes people, but with people who will say what I need to hear, not simply what I want to hear. I'm so grateful for a wife. I prayed, God, give me a wife that will challenge me and make me stronger. I didn't realize it would be so hard sometimes to have a woman who's smart enough to be able to push back and then has her master's in psychology so can mess with my brain. (laughs) Eric, you're catastrophizing right now. I'm like, Kathy, I don't know what catastrophizing means, sweet pea. But it sounds exciting. Let's get some knives and throw them. And so, I want you to know that I am committed to being a man who surrounds myself, continues to surround myself with people who have the right to speak truth. And if you have a concern, I'm open to hearing it. And I will do my darndest with humility to hear it. There are going to be moments when my, my, my heart's going to be like, that hurts, you know? And there's not going to be, I would ask you to be wise about this. Not everything that irritates you is something that you need to bring to me. And don't do it all today or this is going to be a really long day, right? Actually, probably best not on Sundays because Sundays, pastors' brains are dead. Egypt, right? Egypt. I just called you Egypt. I'm so sorry, Chris. (laughs) Brad, I'm going to have to use your timeout spot. I'm going to timeout. I'm sorry, Chris. Although I hear that Egypt is in town. Hopefully we'll see him at some point. Um, So, you know, we don't always say things correctly. We mess up, apparently. Um, And and we need to hear truth. I am so completely derailed right now. But also, so I want you to know, I have people in this church whose job it is to support me and speak in. I have a group of wise elders. In fact, I have people that have helped walk with Lee through the last 15 years of his ministry, who are going to continue to walk with me. And can I have my elders and their wives stand up for a moment? And I say elders and wives because it may be men on this elder board, but let us never forget, in my family I have found that my wife is often more discerning than I am, so it is imperative that our wives are speaking into this as well. And so we've got Pete and Nina here, and Rich and Joyce Rapoli back here, and John and Kathy Jerzak over here, and Tom and Terry Phipps over here, and Randy, and, 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 and I am so grateful for them. Am I missing anybody? I got Jean up top and Michelle across the street pouring into your children on a weekly basis. These are our elders. They are tasked with a heavy burden of, of speaking into and praying about God, where we headed as a church. And we make this commitment. In the seven years that I've been here, we've never made a decision that we were not united on. Now, that's not to suggest that we all agree about everything. We certainly don't, do we? There are times that something comes up and we're like, oh, I think this, I think that. The commitment we make is rather than simply making knee-jerk reactions and saying, nope, I'm pontificating from on high. This is what we're doing. We talk about it. We pray about it. We will often table it for a week and come back to it the next month. We take it home and we we process it with our spouses and go, "Let's, let's pray about this together. So that when we ultimately come back and finally land on something, we have made it as a united team as opposed to simply one person making the decisions for everybody and having them, expecting them to rubber stamp it. And that is a commitment we continue to make to you as the leaders of this church. And as we move forward, in January, you'll have the opportunity to vote for new elders that will come onto this team. And some of them will transition off. 
we still continue to have many. Can I have anybody who has acted as an elder um, stand up for a moment? Okay. Ray and Tim. Mark, yeah. Robin, stand up because you still, you, come on. Your wives too, come on. It's the same kind of thing. We got Byron upstairs. Byron is his street name, right? These guys still... These guys still continue to hold sway. Simply because they have rotated out does not mean that they cease to have a voice in this church. And my prayer is that some of you who perhaps have been here for a short period of time, thank you guys, you can sit down. Some of you who have been here for a short period of time, my prayer is that you will continue to lean in and invest in this church. And one day, these guys will hand the mantle of leadership perhaps to you and you will be tasked with loving and pouring into this church and into the direction of this people. But one other thing I want to introduce, one other thing is that I am not leading this by myself. I got a partner in crime now. And I'm so excited to introduce you. And I was supposed to go really short so he could have a little bit of time. And I have not done that. Typical, right? I do not promise that I'm going to be short in the future, but we'll do our best. Um, Jeff, would you stand up for a moment? This is Jeff. And Jenny, I know you're going to hate me for it, but Jenny, where are you at? There you are. You're back there. Can you stand up for just a moment? You don't have to come up, I promise. This is Jenny. Jennifer. Okay. The better half. But Jeff, I would love for you to just share whatever God has laid on your heart. I'm excited that you're here. Well, the first thing is, uh, if I was brought to give wives counsel and you decided to tell everyone that you decided to teach your eight-year-old to throw knives, that was not something we discussed in advance. We had these little things called lawn darts back in the days, and uh, thank you. Some of you had those too. It was really fun until we tried to play that with the neighbor kids, and so you would throw the dart up and over the fence, and then you realized that when you heard, ouch, you not only didn't get it in the ring, but sooner or later those were banned, and the lawsuits proved that throwing darts and teaching kids to throw knives was not the wisest investment of time. So why chromosome? We'll be talking about that. cat. We need to pray about that. Um, anyway, um, Eric said, write down some things that you think would be entertaining and, uh, and informative. Um, I am 52 years old, and, and Lee was 52 years old. I thought that was entertaining. So when he first came here and I first came here, so my last name is Lee, and his first name is Lee. So all of you that are missing Pastor Lee, you don't have to miss it anymore. Just call me Pastor Lee. You change my name tag next week if you want. I'll just be Pastor Lee. Although, young lady in the back, you can call me Pastor Jay or Jay or whatever we agree to. It's good for you. Mary, is that what your name? Butch, what's your wife's name? The young lady in the... Yes. Jean, you get to call me whatever you want. You said you don't call anybody pastor, so you get to call me whatever you want. Whatever name comes to mind is perfectly fine. Um, I asked Lee what he was most excited about. He said he can't wait to get to the heat, and I am moving to you from Palm Springs, so I can't wait to get out of the heat. I find that interesting. You, people who don't know the Lord don't know he has humor. Um, he can't wait to retire, and I can't wait to work. So I came to work yesterday. Uh, I went to the men's retreat. I've been to two staff meetings. And in my month off of sabbatical, I've actually worked two weeks. So uh, I, that's a big difference between me and Lee right now. Lee is really looking forward to slowing down and golfing and doing all those things. I put my golf clubs in storage, and I've never been happier. So I can't wait to come hang out with you guys and uh, get to know you. Um, 
One of the things that um, I wanted to share with you guys more than anything is this is like a homecoming for me. I actually was born at Hogue Memorial. So when you talk about growing up and living and doing life, uh, the church that my family grew up in, uh, Brian Baptist, is just down the street here in Santa Ana. Uh, my parents still live here in town in Huntington Beach. And Rich and Joanna are actually neighbors. Richard and Joanna? Yeah, they're actually neighbors. Back there in the back. Uh, they're actually neighbors of my parents, so I'm working on getting my parents to come back to church. My parents have thrown in the towel and said that they've attended every church in the Huntington Beach and Newport Beach, and they haven't found anything. I said, well, now that your son is officially in town, does that still qualify? So I'm hopeful that they'll come back, and knowing that they have neighbors, uh, I think that will be a wonderful thing. But um, one of the things that I think is the most important for me to say is, uh, you know, humble and just blessed are the words that just come to mind. Jen and I... Uh, been in ministry 12 years as paid staff, um, 13 years as volunteers at a very large church up in Hesperia called HDC. So Jen and I were involved with a ministry called the Wanas, and uh, I've been involved with student ministries for about 25, 26 years, so a lot of junior high, high school, and college ministry in my life. So that has put me in front of a lot of families, a lot of counseling, uh, a lot of hospital visits, a lot of weddings, a lot of funerals, a lot of bedsides and uh, baptisms. And so, uh, needless to say, I have a master's in Christian education. My passion is uh, evangelism and spiritual kind of formation to kind of help people know what they believe. I think a lot of people inherit faith. And so, my concern is that you have faith, but you just don't know just how valuable it is. I always try to tell my students, it's kind of like, you know, if we had the cure for cancer uh, and didn't tell anybody, what a shame. But the reality is what we have is greater than the cure for cancer. And that's why it's such a blessing, because knowing Christ, they can't take life from us. So what can death do to us? Death, where is your sting? And uh, having dealt with cancer before in our life, we lost our father-in-law to cancer. I can tell you, uh, any of you dealing with any hardships, Jen and I are ready to walk through that with you. We know firsthand death can, there is no sting for those of us in Christ. Um, I'm someone who's not afraid to cry. I'm someone who has a lot of passion. And because of that, I do everything kind of 110%. So uh, I give you fair warning. Um, if you enjoy like, ministry at full blast, uh, I'm your huckleberry. Uh, if not, I'm going to scare you. Um, I hug and love at 110% from the first time that we'll meet. And uh, it will be that way 20 years from now. Uh, my previous church, we had a great run there. We were up in uh, Palm Springs, La Quinta area for about 12 years. We took a very small church from about 134 to about 450 and then went through one of those traditional things where you want to do this and the church wants to do that. And we gave them time to kind of find their own way. And when our youngest daughter, we have three children grown, uh, all walking with the Lord, praise God. Uh, oldest daughter in Santee, California, with a young grandson, and a younger daughter uh, graduating from uh, San Diego Christian in Santee as well, San Diego. And then a son who we just convinced to come home from Oregon. So hopefully we'll be getting him a chance for you guys to see him. He's in Bend, Oregon as well. But um, all of our kids have been raised in the La Quinta area out there with us. And we left the church blessed and encouraged. And hopefully they will continue to do that. But uh, as empty nesters, we went to the elders and said, we want to keep pushing. We, we know that the Lord has something for us. Will you pray? And they said, we pray, but we also release you to whatever the Lord has. Um, I told Eric, I went on the Internet just to kind of see if the Lord had something. And uh, in my previous job experience, I put out 80 resumes. I made it to the final in three of them. 
and one church called me. And the one church that called me is where I was for 12 years. In this case, I went out and looked at a lot of different things. I put out a zillion different resumes. And one night, uh, my wife and me read one, just one job description. And we looked at each other and said, it's called spiritual formation pastor. And every single bullet line on there was like someone who knew me wrote that and said, could you do this? Could you do this? And it was emotional for Jen and I to just think there was a church out there looking for someone with skills, talents, and abilities that God has put in my DNA. So I am blessed that you guys have affirmed that call and given me the chance to come. So we're humbled to be here, and we look forward to doing ministry with your children, with your families. Um, We also have some other hopes to do some ministry with some of the older people as well. We had a very wonderful ministry at the other church with widows as well. So anything that the Lord has for us at the church, we'll be excited to talk to you about. And whether you're painting caricatures for uh, background scenes or whatever it is that you're interested in doing, or my friend Stephen back there just volunteering for something, whatever it is, I'm interested in speaking with you. And just one final thing, if you see me taking notes while I'm talking to you, you're not in trouble. Um, I have a thing about names, right, Russell? Elani? So I have a thing about names and um, D and Connie, right? You don't have your hat on. You're trying to mess me up, but it's okay. Um, Now now you're just showing off. um, I have a thing about names, and I promise you this is a fairly small congregation, so I should be able to have all your names in about two months or less. And the way that I'll know your name is if I look at you and say your name, then I got it. If I don't, just keep saying your name until I get it. And so I'm writing stuff down until I get your name. Now, some of you make it easier for me, like Pete and Nina, because I get a chance to hang out with you at men's retreat or whatever. Um, But until that time, I say your name. Please keep telling me, and I look forward to getting a chance to do ministry and loving on you. Can I read one Bible verse and finish? Please, go for it. You hold this, please. I'll be Mike Stan. This Bible verse has changed my life, and everything I do, I do unto this particular passage and uh, hold myself accountable to this. This is my personal passage. This is 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Mm. Let me see this for a second. All right. Do you trust me? All right, get up there and take your right shoe off for me. I don't need both. I don't want to smell that. Just your right one. No, we're not going to drink from it. Um, So I can't tell you how excited I am because as we were going through this process, it was evident that God was saying, this is the one. We had something like 18 different people apply. There were probably seven or eight phenomenal people, each of whom could have really flourished here and done great. But there was one individual that from the first phone interview on was the, the top of it. And this was Jeff. And it felt like God was saying, I have prepared him and Jennifer for this church. And I prepared this church for him and Jennifer. And so, you, no, you're socked too. Come on, commit. I I was committed Give me this thing. Get out. Come on. Okay, so here's this thing. Um, when, when we've been in the old Testament, so there's this old Testament thing that when somebody was being prepared for the priesthood, let it air out. It's okay. You can, you can part with it. When, when, when priests were being prepared for the priesthood, they would take the, the blood from one of the animal sacrifices and they would anoint. I don't have any blood. Don't worry. Hold on. There are no animal sacrifices that I'm aware of. 
that's Tuesday for the barbecues, okay? So, and last week, they would take the blood of one of the sacrificial animals and they would anoint the priest's right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right big toe. And you can see the symbolism. God, help this individual who is now called to be my representative to hear your voice and to know what you're saying and guide the work of their hands as they serve others in your name and will guide their steps. And so I've got some anointing oil instead. It's got doTERRA in it. Thank you, Robin. (laughs) She's our dealer. (laughs) But I am going to simply pray over you and anoint you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to spend um, a couple of moments in a a moment and and take our offering. And if you have prayer requests, um, we'll be... Those are things that you can drop there. But I'm simply going to pray over you, my brother, my partner in crime. Father God, I thank you for Jeff. I thank you for Jennifer. I thank you for the the path that you have led them on over these last 25 years of ministry that ultimately has led to here. And we recognize that we are simply entrusted with them for a season. I hope it's a long one. But for as long as you call he and Jennifer to be a part of this church, I pray that you would give them the ears to hear your voice and a heart that is willing to submit to it regardless of what you tell them to do. And Father, I pray that you would bless the works of his hands, that these hands would heal, that these hands would reach out to hurting, lonely people, and that the things that he does would have your spiritual backing behind it, that it is ultimately you doing it through him, for your name's sake, not his own. And Father, I anoint his feet and pray that you would guide his steps so that in everything that he does, in every step that he takes, you would lead him, you would set up divine appointments for him. Would you glorify yourself and my brother and build this family even stronger and deeper in our relationship with you through him. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. All right, let's worship. Good. Now, please, go put it back your shoe on. All right, let's worship together, guys.